Hey, welcome to a Zion People podcast. I am Keelan, an intern at Zion Church, and this is our latest message. The team here hope the message challenges you, inspires you, but most of all, builds your faith. Enjoy the message. Uh, so as we start this series, The Sounds of Heaven, uh, we're looking in Revelation 4. Uh, Phil read the, the passage this morning from Revelation 4, and we're actually running through Revelation 4 and 5. Um, and there are five... Uh, <clears throat> Psalms, for want of a better word, five passages in Revelation 4 and 5 that is the sound of heaven. This is what's going on in heaven. Uh, we talked about the, um, to start with, these, these uh, heavenly beings which have a really strange description and, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, but as we go through, there are many, these five passages where uh, different people, different Elements, if you like, of heaven are giving glory to God. And that's what we want to do through this series is look at these five passages and understand that there's this different message from each one that we want to show uh, from the Scriptures that these are the sounds of heaven. This is what's going on in heaven as we speak. <clears throat> uh, some of you may be feeling that, uh, that this is maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you know, if we don't have singing in church, you know, is it really church? Uh, if we don't sing, is it, is it really worship? Um, we've used fellowship as worship and prayer as worship over the last year, expanding that idea of what worship really is. But as you examine your own heart, do you still have a reaction to, <gasps> what, no singing? Um, and if you do, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, but I want to encourage you just to step back and ask yourself, Lord, why do I have that reaction? Why do I uh, come into that place where I go, no, no, singing is worship? And what do I need to learn or what, do I, what can I learn from God in the season about how I worship Him? The Holy Spirit is there to lead you, to guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is there to encourage you and to help you to understand. And as we think about this and work through this idea of a lifestyle of worship, then just uh, be open to the fact that uh, God is far more uh, than you can think or imagine. And that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning uh, when Revelation 4.8 is the first passage. And we're going to be talking about the fact that God is unique. God is unique. God is not like other gods. God is not like other gods. God is not like anything else. Worship defined as being ascribing greatness to God. And so we're going to be looking at kicking off of what that greatness actually looks like. We can ascribe greatness to our God certainly by singing about his greatness. We can also ascribe greatness to God by sharing with others the examples of His greatness in our own lives, which is what we've done this morning. We can show that God is great by demonstrating that what we believe in God is great because it moves us to action. We can ascribe greatness to God by spending time, having a conversation with God, telling Him how we feel, by coming to Him in humility and confession, and thanksgiving and adoration that we have done this morning. Uh, we can understand God's greatness in and of, it as, of itself, apart from us, 
And that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning. You see, God doesn't need us to tell him he's great. God is great. Ascribing greatness is our response to the fact that he is great. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy to be praised. And whether we praise him or not, he's still worthy to be praised. He doesn't need worshippers. He wants us to come into that place where we understand what it means to ascribe greatness to our God because it's good for us. It's good for us. God already has uh, the angels, the elders, the martyrs around the throne ascribing greatness to him. We need to join in with what's going on. It's not that we're looking uh, to do what is going on. Okay, now the point of Revelation 4 and 5, just to give you a little bit of a summary, because it's the book of Revelation and everyone sort of almost has this, yeah, I'd really like to know, and the other half of the congregation says, no, I really don't. Uh, when it comes to the book of Revelation, um, is, I'll just give you a little bit of an overview. Revelation 4 and 5 is answering the question, who is worthy? In Revelation, uh, at the start of Revelation chapter 5, we have this question. In fact, John is so upset because it seems to be that there is nobody here who is worthy to break the seals to open the scroll. And, and John's saying, I'm looking around, I'm looking around, I can't see anybody who is worthy. And he asks that question, who is worthy? And of course, Revelation 5 goes on to explain uh, that somebody has done the work. Somebody has, uh, has made the standard. Somebody is worthy to open the scroll. Now, just as an aside, what was the scroll that was opened? It was the title deed to the planet Earth. All right, a scroll that's written on the inside and the outside in Jewish terms is a title deed. It's the, it's the deed that goes to a piece of land. And what Jesus is being given and, and has the authority to open is the title deed to the planet Earth. He gets to buy it back from the person who, got, who Adam sold it to. That's the whole point uh, of Revelation 4 and 5. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Jesus Christ by his work on the cross. We're ascribing greatness to our God. So in Revelation 4, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to look through that passage again. We heard it at the start uh, of, the, um, uh, of the morning. We're just going to read through again. We've got John who's been given a vision in uh, chapters 2 and 3 of, and messages to the, to the churches uh, throughout Asia Minor. Um, and then uh, in, it starts in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, After this, after all of these things that he's just been shown, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard, uh, first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, it's one of the sounds of heaven. Thunder. 
okay? Thunder in heaven. It's not just this quiet place. You know, we think of the sounds of heaven, angels quietly playing harps, sitting on clouds. You know, that's, an, that's a very uh, renaissance view of heaven. We're talking about peals of thunder. We're talking about lightning. We're talking about flashes. We're talking about color. There's lots of stuff, lots of stuff going on. John, when he's first started that vision in Revelation 1, he says Jesus spoke to him like the sound of mighty waters. This wasn't just a, a whisper. If you've ever stood next to a waterfall, and all you can hear is the water falling. That's what John is saying. It's, it's an overwhelming sound. What are the sounds of heaven? Uh, from the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Agios, 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 Curios, Hotheos, Pantocrator. Ho enkai, ho on, ho urkomenos. I'm sure they speak Greek in heaven. Uh, that's what my Bible says. Uh, but anyway, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Just that phrase. Because it speaks to the uniqueness of God. It speaks to the greatness of God. And uh, as we understand what those three things are, then we'll have an understanding of what we can do to ascribe greatness to our God, what we can do to worship. Uh, now, I thought, well, if I was going to talk about three things, I could just talk about holy, 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 because then I could just write a third of a sermon and do it three times. I thought that might uh, get a little bit uh, monotonous by the third time. It's like the, the jokes, the punchlines don't work anymore, and uh, I thought I'd better do a bit more than that. Uh, so, uh, we'll unpack each of these uh, three phrases. So, what does holy mean? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Have you ever wondered what, when we say God is holy, do we put it in the context when uh, Peter says, you know, be ye holy as I am holy? And we go, okay, gee. God can't be very holy then because, I oh know, I'm not very holy. The, the fundamental core of the meaning of the word agios in the Greek or holy in the English is actually different. God is different. Uh, and then we get this whole idea of holiness being separated from. Uh, when we talk about our own uh, uh, the work of the cross and what it's doing, it separates us from. In sanctification, we have this two-step process. We are made holy as we follow Christ, but there's this first initial work of sanctification where we're set apart, where we're, God sets us apart for His purpose, and that makes us holy. But how does that apply to, to God? God can't set Himself apart for His own purpose, or... Can he? This sort of idea, this technical meaning is that God is somehow different from the world, somehow separated from the world. 
And that's the bit that we try and really hard to, to understand but can't quite get it. You see, we have a human perception of who God is. We have a human perception of who God is because that's all that we can have. But then when you read through Scripture and, and you understand who God is, you sort of go, well, that's just so much more than what I could think or imagine. He is so much greater. He's not just big. He's infinite. And everyone says, you know, okay, well, I understand infinity. Well, no, we don't. You know, what's a number bigger than infinity? Oh, it's easy, infinity plus one. No, no, doesn't work. There is no such thing as infinity plus one. For those of you who are math geeks, you can uh, talk to me about that later. Okay, uh, <laughs> this agios implies that there is something that is set apart. One of the definitions around holiness is this idea of, of being separated from sin and devoted to seeking his honor. When we, when we uh, look at God and we say we want God to be holy in our own lives or he wants us to be holy, then we're set apart from the sin and evil of this world and we're devoted to seeking his honor. Well, God is the same. He's devoted to seeking his own honor, which is really strange when you think about it. Isn't that a little bit self-serving? devoted to seeking his own, honor, his own honor, but the fact is that he is worthy. That's not self-centered, that's just self-evident that God is worthy to be praised in his own, in his own being. The fact that it's the, the Bible says holy, 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 that three times there, that repetition, very Jewish because repetition means emphasis. We, would say, we wouldn't say that in the English. We'd just say really holy or really, really holy. And they repeat those words just because they want us to get across with that message that this is not just you know, what we think of, but it's taking it to a whole new level. Who is worthy? They say, who is worthy? God is worthy. God is worthy of everything. Uh, another definition of holiness is this morally and spiritually excellent. In God is where morality begins. God is the definition of good. Not just God is good, God is the definition of good. And we want to understand God's holiness as much as we possibly can because that's the standard that we're, we're uh, striving for. And you, you think to yourselves that, well, how can I, as, an, as, a, you know, as this creature, this creation, this created being who is unworthy, ever aspire to reach God in his holiness? And the answer is, I can't. The answer is that none of us is able to even come close to God in his holiness. But that Christ made a way for us, that, that uh, God gave us, an opportunity to take on his righteousness. And what do we get to do? What do we do in return? We give him our sin. We give him all the unrighteousness, the unworthiness, the unholiness that we have in us, and we give that to Christ when he gives us his righteousness, his holiness, so that we can stand in heaven. If you're worried this morning about being worthy before you stand, uh, 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 worthy enough to stand before the throne of God, just remember that you don't stand there in your own strength. You stand there because Christ has done all the work. He's made a way. We can come boldly into the throne room simply because Christ uh, has made a way for us. 
in the Old Testament, that, that picture of holiness was really in the tabernacle. They talked about the holy place. So first of all, they, they just build a tent in the middle of a camp. It's in the middle of a you know, dry and dusty desert. Uh, but they put this tent and they put a wall around it and they section it off. And they say, outside is the world. Inside is the place of God. And then within the tabernacle, they have the holy place where the priest can come and go uh, uh, to, to, to uh, change the bread on the table, to, to trim the lamps uh, in the menorah, uh, to do the things that they need to do to offer the prayers uh, in front of the uh, altar of incense. And so, but then but that's separated. There's only certain uh, people who can go in there. And then they separate it again and they say there's the most holy place where the mercy seat is, the Ark of the Covenant. And only once a year can we go into that place. And only one person out of the whole nation of Israel is able to do that. There's this continual separation and continual increase in devotion. And yet for us, as we look at the tabernacle and we say one person once a year can get into the most holy place because that's how separated from sin and evil God is, for us every day and every believer can come into the most holy place. The veil is torn. There is a separation. We're called to be holy because he is holy. And, and how do we understand that God in his perfection allows, that, allows us to come close? God is unique in his perfection. He, all of God's attributes are perfected in his holiness. God is holy in his love. He's holy in his wrath. He's holy in his mercy as well as his grace. Now compare that idea of God as being so much different and and compare it with other religions. Compare the, the squabbles, the petty squabbles of the Greek gods always trying to do outdo one another. You know, that whole idea of, of the gods in, in the Greek world was, was these guys that really just larger-than-life humans. And they fought, and they argued, and they competed with one another, and they got ticked off. Think about the, the Roman gods and the politics that went on as to who had the more followers, who got the, most, who got the biggest temple, who got the most offerings. Think about the balance of good and evil in the Hindu gods. That the fact that the Godhead create is, is the source of both good and evil, the both creation and destruction. Think about the, the double-mindedness of Allah. They say uh, that, uh, you know, if, if you're a Muslim, then hopefully that you'll stand before Allah's throne uh, behind a righteous man. Why is that? Because if the man in front of you is righteous... Allah will be in a good mood. And you think, well, better hope you're not standing behind a scumbag because what hope do you have? You know, and there's this fickleness, this double-mindedness, and we, and we see this amongst other gods, so-called gods. And yet when we look at our God, when we look at Yahweh, we see he is the standard of perfection. He's not a human being made big. Called in our own image. That's what man is good at, creating gods in, the, in his own, own image rather than the other way around. So, God is holy. God is unique 
in his holiness. The next phrase is, the Lord God Almighty, Kyrios Hotheos Hopentecrator, translated the Lord God Almighty. It's interesting that Kyrios comes from the Greek word kuros, which means supreme in authority. And sometimes when we think about the Lord, we think about our boss. And we say, oh, the guy who gets to say he's in charge. And yet the, the, the idea here is Lord over all, supreme in all authority. It's not just uh, having authority. It's the ultimate authority of all creation. And God is unique in that there is no other authority higher than him. God's omnipotence means that he is able to do all of his holy will. That's a bit of a challenge for those people who say, you know, God is omnipotent. That means he can do anything. That's, that's the bad definition. You know, God can't lie. Oh, so he's not omnipotent then. But you just said he could do anything he wants. Well, that's the key. He can do anything he wants and he's holy. So what he wants to do is his holy will and he has all power and authority to do that. There's no one able to challenge his authority. Uh, there's been a shift these days in thinking about Jesus not as our Lord and Saviour, but as our Saviour. And we sort of have this idea as we move into grace that, you know, God loves me and God wants to see me blessed and God wants to see me successful and God went to the cross uh, in the form of his son and he paid for my price and I can go to heaven and God saved me. And you go, well, that's all very true. But we sort of missed the part where we surrender our will to his will, where we say, I'm no longer a slave to sin because I'm a slave to Christ. I didn't get out of slavery when I got saved. I just changed bosses. Fortunately, the boss that I now work for is a kind, loving, graceful, merciful master, as opposed to the master I used to work for. He was terrible. He had promised lots of good things, but at the end of the day, the paycheck came up a little bit short. So we've changed masters, and we need to get away from this idea that God is just our Savior. Jesus went to the cross just to save me, but he went there to show that he's not only made a way for us to move out of the kingdom of darkness, but he is king of our lives, and we need to surrender that to him. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the supreme authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He is truly Lord. We need a revelation of Jesus as Lord, I think. Curios, not curious, curios. Theos, the next word, means God. That's pretty easy. Um, interesting enough, there's not too much uh, uh, written about what the origin of that word is. Uh, although long before the New Testament was written, that, that word theos in the Greek referred to the supreme being who owns and sustains all things. God is unique because he owns everything. Not just the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything. Some have suggested that the, the root of that word theos means to implore, to ask, to, to beseech, to supplicate. Right? God is the one we go to to ask for stuff because he owns everything. Is he the first place that you go to to ask? 
or the last place? Is he truly, do you see him as theos, owning everything? Or do you see him as sort of that, well, you know, I'll try and figure it out on my own. If it doesn't work, maybe I'll come and say a few prayers and say, God, uh, please give me. Uh, Do we see that theos, that idea of of, uh, God who owns everything as being our supernatural ATM? I got a card with Jesus' name written on it. I put it into my supernatural ATM. Out flows the blessings. God says, hey, there's not much credit in your account. You need to pray more. (laughs) Is that how we think it works? Sometimes I think it, it, it seems that way. It seems we, we, we come to this place and we have, I have my Jesus card and I'm putting it into my soup and I, I'm expecting these blessings to flow. And when they don't, I've somehow it's like, oh, I've got to work out. Move up. Get more. Get more spiritual. Be more holy. Be more righteous on the outside. I think that uh, if we have this Revelation of God as Theos, as the God who owns everything, we first need to start with that first one, Curios, we need to know God as Lord. When we know him as Lord, he truly is Theos. We don't come to him asking for blessings. We come to him because we're surrendered to him. The third word is uh, Pantocrator, translated as Almighty. Uh, It's made up of two words, Pan, which means all, as in pantheon, that's all gods. Uh, pandemonium, you know where that word comes from? That's what it would be like if all of the demons were let loose. Pandemonium, okay? Uh, or something we're actually really familiar with, pandemic. There's a word you hear. Uh, this means uh, <laughs> too much, too much. Pandemos means all the people. Uh, so we would, we would actually like to say that we would, we would hope that Christianity is a pandemic. Imagine Christianity being a pandemic. Sweeping through the world, uh, no one is immune. All right, just a thought, just a thought there. Uh, the second part of the word comes from kratos, which means might or power or dominion or strength. And all we've done in the English is we've put those two together, pan, all, and kratos, mighty, and we've said Almighty. And then to mess people up, we've dropped one of the L's, uh, just to make it like it's a new word. They do that all the time. So this pantocrator is this compound word that means almighty. All dominion, all power, all strength. That is the God that we serve. Uh, interestingly enough, that word, Greek word in, in, in the middle there is ho, Curios, ho, theos, ho, pantocrator, just means the, it's the definite article. So it's not just uh, a God, but the God. It's not just the, uh, a ruler, it's the ruler of all. So the Lord God Almighty is supreme in authority, the divine owner, the ruler of all. That's the God that we serve. God is unique. Remember that, God is unique. God is not sharing his power with other gods. God is not uh, 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 you know, trying to figure out how to deal with the things that are going on. He is supreme in authority. He is the ruler of all. 
And the last uh, line speaks of God's uh, timeliness, his eternal characteristics. How does God view time? Hoen, kai hoon, kai ho erkomenos. The one having been, the one being, and the one to come. God is eternal. Uh, that doesn't mean that God's really old. Some people say uh, God's uh, really old and he'll live forever and that's why God is timeless. Well, no, that's not how eternity works. Uh, God is outside of time. God, time is part of God's creation. And oftentimes, we, I, mean, I was having this debate this week, I was on a, a uh, Christology course, um, and we sort of had this idea of, well, okay, what about eternal security? Once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? And I said, well, actually, if you want to have that discussion, try and have it without using any time words. You know, someone gets saved and then, uh, that's a time word. You can't, you can't use then. You can't use after. You can't use before. You can't do an if-then statement. You can't say and later. None of those. If you don't want to use any of those, and now try to talk about once saved, always saved. Hang on, once and always, they're time words as well. Hmm, can't use that. And all of a sudden you have this idea of actually what we're arguing about is something within our frame of reference. But God is outside of our frame of reference. God is outside of uh, creation and therefore outside of time. And this topic of God's eternity should make us stop and think. Why is God never surprised? Because he's in the eternal now. Everything is now. So something that comes up, it's already now. Something that's going to happen tomorrow is already now. Try not to think about it too hard. It'll give you a headache. Uh, I like this. Uh, another way of phrasing God's eternity is the doctrine of the infinity of God with respect to time. Think about that. The doctrine of the infinity of God with respect to time. As opposed to the doctrine of God, uh, sorry, the doctrine of the infinity of God with respect to space, which would be his omnipresence, surely. Okay, lost you all with that one. Uh, try not to think about it. Okay, God is outside time. We all got that? We're okay? Okay, we'll just stick with that one. That's uh, just too much otherwise. All right, okay. Uh, <laughs> to be infinite is to be unlimited, and that's our God. The only God in Jude 25, uh, it says, To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. God's always existed. One of the problems that we have is that oftentimes we see God as very distant and when we talk about God outside of time, we have this perception that God is not invested in his creation. But let's take a couple of uh, examples. In, in uh, Psalm 90 we say, uh, we read, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And in the New Testament, Peter in 2 Peter 3 says that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, we, uh, we understand that the, the thousand years in there uh, could often be, could be thought of as figurative as all of history. Okay, but I want to take it literally for a moment and say, what does that mean? What does that mean? You see, if we take that literal approach, it would be as if Jesus died on the cross on Friday last week. 
In God's view, that's as recent as it was. If a day is as a thousand years and Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago, then that's Friday. Now, some of us can remember what happened on Friday. It's not that far back in our history. But the death on the cross of Jesus is as recent in God's memory as that. Abraham would have left Ur of the Chaldees and headed off to found the nation of Israel on Tuesday last week, in God's view. So to give you an idea of how God sees time, this massive compression that says all of human history can be summed up in you know, what happened since last Sunday, in some views. Maybe it's the week before in other views. But what about the other way around? What about the other way around? If a day is as a thousand years. If you consider Jesus hanging on the cross for six hours, that would feel like 250 years for us. Suddenly the sacrifice of, uh, of, a, of a God who steps into his creation, uh, who is willing to, to make that sacrifice for all of us, seems to be far, far bigger than what we could think or imagine. You know, we think of cross, you know, Jesus went to the, to the cross and he just had to endure that pain and suffering for six hours, but that's an eternity, an eternity on the cross to make sure that every single sin that needs to be paid for is paid for. That, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, the, the hymn that says, you were, when Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind, that it, we can take that literally, that he could... He can think of every single person. This is the God who has stepped into time to save us, but who is outside of time. This is clearly a God who is unique. This is clearly a God who deserves our worship. Isaiah 46 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. As we look at this phrase, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, we should be standing back in awe just in that tiny little phrase and saying, our God is worthy to be praised. This is ascribing greatness to God because he is great. If we, can, if we even have just a, a glimmer of understanding of the infinite God, then we'll see how great, how far beyond, how far more than we could think or imagine that he is. We kind of come back to that question. The question that Revelation 4 and 5 is asking is, who is worthy? Ah, well, it's pretty obvious. The answer is there right in front of us. God who is holy, God who is almighty, God who is the supreme ruler, God who is eternal. He is worthy. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we see that bridge between man and God. And Jesus Christ is worthy to open the scroll. Worship is derived from two words. Uh, it's the sense of worthship. Who is worth praising. That's what worship is about. Who, who has enough worship that we should praise them? Well, it's only our God. And one of the sounds of heaven are the angels before the throne singing that. 
singing about the eternal God. And we think about those angels in heaven as so far above us, and yet they're singing because God is worthy. God is not just another angel. God is worthy for even the angels to praise. I'm going to finish with this. First uh, Chronicles 16, it's a psalm of David that he taught to Asaph to minister to the Lord. First Chronicles 16, starting in verse 23. The psalm actually starts back in verse 8. But First Chronicles 16, 23 starts this way. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared, he is to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out. Save us, God our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then all the people said, and praise the Lord. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us this glimpse in your word of who you are. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would even go away from this morning with a new revelation a new understanding, just a, a, a better glimpse of your awesome majesty, your power and authority, your holiness and your splendor. Lord, we just pray uh, that, that that glimpse of heaven would encourage us to move forward, would encourage us to surrender ourselves more fully, would encourage us to give more of ourselves for your service. Lord, we thank you that we have changed a master who treats us badly, to a master who treats us well. And Lord, I pray that out of the gratitude of our heart that you've saved us out of all darkness, that out of that gratitude we would want to serve you with every fiber of our being, that we would want to give you praise and honor, that we would want to worship you every day, every hour of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for you are worthy, worthy to be praised. Amen. Amen. You want to... Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our message and it inspired you. Stay connected and get amongst our family. Find us on Facebook, YouTube or our app. We are Zion people.